Well, hello there. You look fantastic. You truly do. Trust me. You are listening to the Inspired Minds Podcast. My name is Jeff Watson. I am indeed, and as always, and ever shall be, your gracious and grateful host. I'm having a lot of fun with those intros lately. <laughs> Keep them on. You're getting weirder. Uh, as always, I'm having a fantastic time doing these things, especially courtesy of my dear friend and producer extraordinaire, Mr. Michael Lee Simpson, who continues to bless me and give me this rainfall of brilliant people to speak to. Um, he's also uh, he's a great writer, uh, backstage, variety, a lot of industry stuff, but he's doing a great screenwriter, too. So, as always, I love you, my friend. And so, one of the people he got uh, me to speak to was this guy named Jason Fine. Now, to go backwards for a second... I want to talk about music for me. And music has always been an incredible inspiration for me. Um, even as a kid, there was something about music that just kind of transformed me for a second. And I was able to not have to think about the past or the future. And I was just immediately rooted. And I've been able to pull that off uh, for a very long time, at least. I'm very fortunate. I call it my ladder to God. And there are certain songs that truly inspire me, uh, David Bowie's Heroes or Purple Rain or Once in a Lifetime by the Talking Heads or anything, old country. So that's been extremely important for me. Um, and that carried me into a lifetime of music. So it was bands in the 90s and toured and recorded. And then I became a record company uh, worker uh, for 15 years at Warner Brothers Records. And that was an amazing run. And it's always been this thread line for me. So this person, this interviewee, my God, this is incredible, uh, Jason Fine. So he's been at Rolling Stone as the editor for 25 years. He started off as an associated editor in 1997 and then rose through and editor of Rolling Stone, currently the senior VP at Rolling Stone's Films, who put out a bunch of and are continuing to put out some incredible documentaries. So the first thing that he put out uh, was this movie called The Long Promised Road, and that is with Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys and his relationship to the uh, to the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson. So it was an incredible conversation about that. We talked a lot about mental health, because if those of you who do not know, Brian Wilson of said Beach Boys and the primary singer-songwriter uh, had a lot of issues to this day, still does, with mental health. We got to talk a lot about that, which is really my passion. Talked about Merle Haggard, the outlaw country legend, because uh, Jason wrote this incredible article about uh, the last days of Merle Haggard, and then he talked about Bruce Springsteen. I mean, my God, it was unbelievable what this conversation went to. Um, talking about journalism in general and just being music dorks. And, you know, film, I love film. I talk about film all the time, but music is really where my heart is. So this conversation was unbelievable, and especially the fact that I interviewed the fucking head of Rolling Stone. Like, what the hell is that? <laughs> I read that magazine. I still do to this day. I mean, it's like a legendary thing. So for me, it was really important. Also, uh, Rolling Stone gave my old band a four-star review. We didn't sell any records as a result, but there's a connection there. At any rate, I truly hope that you enjoyed this as much as I did making it, because I get to dork out about music. My God, that's my thing. Hope you're having a great night. Evening, morning, 4 a.m., wherever you are. And uh, go listen to the Beach Boys, by the way. Go listen to Pet Sounds. Because I swear to God, if you do not, if you hear Wouldn't It Be Nice, the first song on that record, and you have no feeling as a result, you are dead inside as far as I'm concerned. You are a husk of a human being. You have a walking brainstem with nothing else. Because that song is so unbelievably beautiful and sweet and kind and innocent. So that's your homework for you, ladies and gentlemen. If you haven't heard that song, stop, listen to it, 
and that's all you got. It's a brilliant song. <laughs> I'm done. Here comes a smart guy, not me. <laughs> yeah, bye. Okay, hello, everybody on the Inspired Minds podcast, you dazzled throng. I have the incredible fortune of speaking to the lovely and talented Jason Fine of Rolling Stone. Mr. Jason Fine, please say hello to the dazzled throng. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I cannot wait. Cannot wait. As I was discussing earlier, I'm a big fan of uh, a lot of the artists that you've talked about and worked on. But before we get too far into this, I always like to ask the following opening question, and that is, when you were young, what was the first thing that you can remember that truly inspired you when you were a kid? Was it a song or a book or a movie? Go. I think the first thing that really that I can remember just registering and sort of taking me to another place was I checked out the Elton John's greatest hits album at the library. I mean, I'm sure there were books and I'm sure there were other things. Certainly, you know, Davy Lopes, the second baseman for the Dodgers uh, back then inspired me. But the first thing where I remember having my mind blown was the song Rocket Man on Elton John's greatest hits. And just sitting in my room, you know, being whatever I was, eight or nine years old, <clears throat> and just being transported by it. Um, and, you know, and that's, that's, that's the feeling that music still gives me now and that has kind of fueled a lot of um, the work that I've done. Yeah, I, that's why I always love asking this question because it's almost like an origin story. The more I ask this question to people... I, I realize that it's that moment of like that inflection point, you know, that moment of inspiration where they're like, because for me, it was, and this is not the coolest thing in the world, but I was five. So excuse me, Boston's more than a feeling. I was at a, I was at a library and heard that song and I was like, I yeah. want, I need that. I don't know what that is. I think, I mean, I think if you are, you know, I mean, speaking as a, as a man, I think as a male, um, I think when you're, you know, you're young, just like just like girls, you're looking for those role models. You're looking for those inspirations. You're looking for sort of how you define your own identity. And if you're not maybe – I mean, I was into sports. I played baseball and tennis. But if you're sort of not going to define yourself that way or identify with sports figures as a boy, you're looking for other places where you can find those – those heroes. And I think for a lot of boys like me, it was music and um, music stars sort of supplied a kind of different path, right? A more artistic path, a, a, a different way of expressing yourself or, or being cool. Um, and so I think always, it was always, that was always the thing for me. It was always like looking in the music for the message, both of the songs and the sounds, but also, you know, where do I fit into all this? Right. And as I often say for myself, uh, that music for me is like a ladder to God. I've kind of, which I'm basically stealing, quite frankly, from um, Brian Wilson's uh, Teenage Symphonies to God kind of, kind of line. But for me, there's just that connection that's always been important. So take me then. For, uh, so you got Elton John. I'm curious, like, give me some other ones that kind of came a bit later that was a little more of an inflection point as well. Well, I mean, you know, the other record that was really big for me at that moment was the Beach Boys' Endless Summer, which came out in 1974 when I was eight. And, um, and you know, 
all those songs, all those hits, all those things like Fun, Fun, Fun and Catch a Wave and Surfing USA and all that stuff was awesome and great. But there were also these songs on there like In My Room and even Surfer Girl, Uh the ballads and these songs that were very internal and that were very, um, you know, uh, melancholy and that where you sort of felt the loneliness in those songs, despite all the fun of the sound. And, and I remember, you know, that was something that appealed to me too. So that was kind of, that was early on and that music meant a lot to me. But then as you get a little older, I mean, certainly growing up in Southern California in the early eighties, late seventies, early eighties, you know, the beach boys were not cool. No. Um, and so, um, you know, I gravitated towards punk rock, um, which was happening. And in Southern California at that time, the punk rock scene was incredible. And it wasn't, you know, just hardcore thrasher bands. It was bands with real kind of point of view, political point of view, social point of view, literary point of view, bands like X and the Minutemen, mm-hmm. um, all the SST bands, really. There was an incredible band called Saccharine Trust mm-hmm. that um, was a big motivator for me. So th- those those bands were like what I grew up on and had sort of, you know, even kind of like forgotten. I mean, the Beach Boys seemed way uncool at that point in my life. So it was a long time later until I even came back to the Beach Boys music and, and reconsidered it or any of the the classic rock, which, you know, seemed way too commercial and overblown to me as a kind of naive, you know, punk rock fan. <laughs> right, right. And I think you kind of answered my question, but I was going to ask what specifically about the L.A. punk scene uh, with all the SST uh, bands that you mentioned and X, X, by the way, my God, what a band. Um, so what was it about that sound? Was it just because it was commercial or was it because well, it, was it was local? First of all, right. Um, you could see those bands, you know, yeah. I probably saw X 10 times in high school. Yeah. Um, so you could, you could get access. They were around. That was one thing. There was also a pride, a local pride, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we live now at things, are still regional in some ways, but maybe less so. I mean, you know, even radio is not terrestrial anymore. It's, you know, it's, it's out in the satellites. And so you had these local pride, you had these local scenes and, um, and that was really cool. And there was an LA point of view. LA was a little bit of like, it felt like the underdogs, right? LA was known for, you know, the big entertainment industry, but sort of this, this sort of literary edgy thing, in the shadows of that was, was, was really appealing. Um, we used to go to a, a place called Al's bar in Hollywood. I mean, in, um, downtown, downtown. and I, you know, I, I think it still exists, but that it was just like this sort of secret part of the sort of, you know, there was, um, I don't know if you ever read the book, uh, city of courts, uh-huh. um, by Mike Davis, which was a great sort of, um, alternative history of LA. And, you know, the, the, the first chapter I think was called sunshine and noir. And it was sort of that, that noir in the sunshine that was, that was another thing that was really appealing about that music. That's true. Oh, and, uh, for the record, for the audience, uh, gathered Al's bar, ladies and gentlemen, was a bigger shithole almost than CBGB's. And it was magical. My old band would play there all the time. It was just a dump. But there was something. I think it's still there because I got a um, I got a message recently from one of the guys in Flipper that they were that they were playing there. So I I guess it's still there. 
Yeah, you know you've you know you've cut your teeth in the real uh, underground punk scene when you played that shithole a bunch of, a bunch of times. <laughs> I had a blast doing all that kind of stuff. But you're right though. You know, I mean, I'm kind of the same way. You know, I I was a kid and I was into Elton John and I was into Boston and I wasn't just whatever my friends had at the time. But um, for me personally, because I was a suburban or a suburb kid, I w- it was MTV. That was my thing. Uh, mm-hmm. so I got into, you know, but it was a different expression. It was, uh, you know, the, the new romantic, you know, kind of look and expression of all that. So that's, that's kind of where, um, I en- ended up and then I got into the punk world and et cetera. But what I would, can you kind of walk me through a little bit about, uh, kind of, you said earlier before we were talking that David Frick kind of gave you your first lead or your first story writing for a mud honey review. And can you kind of take me just maybe briefly kind of your arc? Well, I mean, I, um, my junior year of college, I realized I hadn't really done much. Um, and I better sort of figure out what I wanted to do. And there was this, there was a great college radio station called Calex at, uh-huh. in Berkeley, um, and so I went down there one day and thought, well, let me just volunteer. Maybe I can be a DJ. And they said, oh, sure, you know, just go in this room and, and open all this mail. And then no one talked to me for like seven hours. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, this is, this is not going to be what I want to do. No. So next door down the, down the street was the college newspaper. Um, and the college newspaper at the time called The Daily Californian um, had been doing a lot on – um, the anti-apartheid rallies, they had been doing a lot on African music and Jamaican music, which I really loved. And I went and spoke to the the guy who was the music editor there at the time and said, you know, I think I could write about some of this music that you guys are covering a lot. Um, and so I got a couple assignments and realized that, you know, this was interesting. It was an interesting thing for me to be able to ask questions of people that I really admired um, I wasn't a musician myself, but both my parents were musicians. So I felt like I had a little bit of, of, um, understanding of how to ask questions and how to talk to musicians. Um, and so it kind of went from there. Um, I was never necessarily just interested in writing about musicians, but I was very interested in what makes people tick, what, what makes, um, how do artists work, um, what's sort of the stories behind the music. Um, and so musicians became kind of a way to write about people more than it was to write about music. And so it kind of, you know, it went from there. I mean, from a, from a young age, um, I read Rolling Stone and both my dad and I read it. My dad read it for the politics and I read it for the music coverage. And in my mind, Rolling Stone had a kind of literary sensibility, a point of view style of journalism, an ability to get access to incredible things and to let writers write in ways that, you know, newspapers certainly didn't and even most magazines didn't. So it was always sort of in the back of my mind that, you know, Rolling Stone was maybe a place that I would dream of working one one day. Um, it took an awful long time <laughs> to get uh, a, a first assignment. I mean, it was, it was years later, but I just wrote letters and wrote letters and wrote letters and volunteered my services. And finally, um, one day I got a call from the legendary music editor at Rolling Stone at the time, David Frick, 
you know, asking me if I would be willing to review a concert by the grunge band Mudhoney. Um, and I'm, I'm convinced to this day that he just couldn't get anyone else to do it. And in desperation <laughs> called me. Um, and I did, and it was really fun and, and it went well and he liked it. And then we sort of just started, you know, I started freelancing, um, from that point. And, and, um, I eventually went to work at Rolling Stone in New York, uh, moved from California in 97 as an editor and writer. And I've been there ever since. What a singular purpose of vision that you had. Well, I mean, it might've been, you know, massively stupid. I don't know. Um, it, <laughs> you know, there really was not really a plan B. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and music journalism has changed. The industry has changed. The music has changed. You know, all those things, um, have happened. Sure. Um, and I've done a lot of things and written about a lot of other things and edited stories about a lot of other things than music, but music definitely is a through line, um, in my career. And I think, it's not, I mean, I love music, but it's not really about writing about music. It's about writing about people and their experiences. Um, and that's kind of what it's always been about for me. Yeah, I, I noticed that actually in uh, doing my research and reading a lot of your writing. And I think that's, that's what makes it, that's what separates, I think, always a good journalist from kind of just the run of the mill is when they're talking about themes, it's not necessarily just like, oh, this song is really good and here's here are the lyrics to it, right? There's that. Well, I mean, I guess, I mean, there are some incredible, incredible writers who write technically about music and innovation in music and how, you know, music works and, and, and that. That's just not really what I know or my real interest. My real interest is in what are the motivations and challenges behind it and huh. Um, how does the, you know, it's sort of like if you're writing about say actors or, um, um, who play roles you're writing, you know, a lot of times you're talking to actors about acting, but with music, certainly a song isn't a definition of a person, but usually it's, 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 it's the person's statement. In most cases, they're not usually playing a role. It's some aspect of that person. Um, and that really fascinates me. I can tell. And I kind of want to go into now, um, because as I mentioned, you and I have been going back and forth on email, uh, getting this thing set up. And I've, I've, I've been mentioning heavily, I'm a big, big, big Brian Wilson fan. And one thing is um, his backing band, the Wondermints, are old friends of mine, uh, Darian, the, uh, and, and, and I, I miss Nick, uh, the amazing yeah. guitar player who passed. And I'll, I've known those guys for like 20 years, 30 years, I think, at this point. So watching you, so I watched uh, Long Promise Road that everybody should go out and watch. It's fantastic. What's interesting is I did notice you have such an amazing rapport with Brian. And it's because you're just so open with him. You're, you give him the space, I think I noticed a little bit. Maybe, maybe that's the wrong way to phrase it. But to just experience what he needs to experience without kind of j jumping in hard. Is that a fair way to put it? I mean, you know, with a lot of famous people and particularly someone who has challenges like Brian, a lot of people, you know, claim – 
they know what's best for that person or claim they know what the real story is, you know, and books are written and movies are made. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff like that. And I just felt like Brian deserved the chance to, and he wanted to, it wasn't that he deserved the chance. He, it was what he wanted to do to tell his own story in his own way, go where he wanted to go. Um, reflect on his own experiences rather than it being necessarily like, you know, you know, even say an example was, um, you know, that Brian lived really in as a sort of prisoner of, um, of a really, um, unethical, uh, therapist for many years. And it's, the story is commonly told of the, the abuse of this therapist and all this terrible stuff that happened, which is all true. But Brian's own experience of that is more nuanced. Brian's own take on it and how he views it, I think, is 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 really human and, and really vulnerable. And so giving Brian the opportunity to tell his own story in the way he wanted wants to tell it was kind of what he and I talked about. That was what we were going to try and do. Um, and maybe it's a thing where he's at a certain age where – looking back is comfortable in that way or, 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 or whatever the reason is maybe he was comfortable with me, which I think he is, but the opportunity was there to let Brian, uh, lead. Right. And you gave him the space for that, I guess is to use therapist language. It was incredible watching it. And what I thought was also interesting is there was a, there was a thing that you had mentioned that he had heard what a fool believes and was scared. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's a very funny story, and it's it was it was one of the my first ever experiences with Brian. I had gone to his house in Beverly Hills, and I was very intimidated. I'd heard all kinds of things about that he's a difficult interview, and then I was here in this you know sort of palatial home in Beverly Hills, and you know ringing the doorbell, and. He answered the door. We went in. We we sort of talked for a few minutes, 15, 20 minutes. And, um, and he just kind of turned white and was like, I got to go. Um, and he left. And oh. I was sitting in his living room. Um, wasn't really sure if he was coming back or not coming back. And we just sort of hung out. Um, heard the dogs barking in the other room. You know, heard some voices waited for a sort of uncomfortably long period of time, maybe 10 minutes, which felt like hours. And finally I was like, well, should I be leaving? Should I be, what should I be doing? So I just started kind of wandered to where I heard the voices and found Brian in the refrigerator looking for a snack. And he, he sort of said, Oh, Hey Jason, you know, like nothing had happened. (laughs) And I said, well, Brian, I said, you okay? And he said, yeah. I said, well, what's up? And he's like, I, you know, sometimes, sometimes I just get scared. And I said, oh, I said, I understand. I said, you know, what, what, what scares you? And he says, well, what a fool believes, you know, that song by the Doobie Brothers just terrifies me. (laughs) So I don't know that broke the ice. We went back, we, we had a good conversation and that maybe kind of set, um, that sort of set us up for, um, a relationship and, you know, as a journalist and a subject, but also as friends, um, over the next many years. 
it's it's a beautiful story. And there's one thing I noticed too, and I could be wrong about this, but it seemed like some of his um, almost emotional deregulation is just driving around listening to music. Well, you know, I mean, you know, from from going on road trips and stuff with people, or or just taking drives with people, being in the car is 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 kind of a cool zone. It's it's not a zone where you necessarily need to be talking all the time. Yeah. A conversation can kind of stop and start. You can look out for the window for a while. You can, you know, be lost in your thoughts. You can turn on some music. So it's already kind of a, a good zone to be in if you're not trying to sit down and, you know, ask questions and get answers, which mm-hmm. is never really how I approach any reporting. Um, it's always about picking up things as they come come along with of course goals of information that you want to sort of get at but but being in a more casual environment where there's no pressure is is good and that's good for Brian and it's good for me and so driving around LA um which we've done over many years and and that's primarily what we did for this film was a really natural thing to do um and also it's you know it's like this is Brian's hometown. You know, he lives now maybe, I don't know, less than 20 miles from where he was born. Mm. Um, you know, he's sort of got, not only has he written songs about this city all his life, but he's got memories on all these corners. So it's a kind of rich place to just be in a car and listening to music. One of the things that was most interesting is, you know, we, we had loaded up an, an iPhone with, all the Beach Boys albums um, and all his albums and other albums that um, that he, that we know that that he loves, um, so that he could sort of pick a soundtrack. Huh. And the songs that we listen to in the car in the film are the songs that he wanted to listen to, and they almost invariably are songs that the Beach Boys recorded in the 1970s, late 60s maybe, but mostly in the 1970s, featuring his brothers. They were huh. songs that is brothers sang that his brothers produced when Brian was sort of at a place where he was a little less involved with the group. He would step in, step out, but his brother Carl and his brother Dennis were really stepping into leadership roles in the group. And you almost felt hearing these songs and I've loved some of these songs like it's okay. Uh And long promised road, which was a Carl song breakaway, a song that he wrote with his dad Darlin, which was a song that Brian had written, but then Carl really just sang beautifully later on. Um, these songs, he he was kind of, it felt like communing with his brothers who were both yeah. past uh-huh. and also realizing or remembering that his brothers really took up his place in the group when he couldn't really fulfill that role. And you just felt all that washing over him and you felt him feeling that love of his brothers, that support from his brothers. Wow. And I think also pride that he he helped his brothers become better artists, better musicians, better singers, better producers. And that was probably the most just amazing experience to see him have that experience. How lovely. What a lovely, lovely idea. There was a couple more things about Brian uh, to talk about. Maybe we can move on a bit. But there was I love this when he said uh, about the songwriting process. And he, he simply said, it starts in my brain. Then it makes its way down to the piano and he shows his hands and then out to the speakers in the studio. And mm-hmm. it was that automatic process 
that was wonderful. It was a perfect description of it because at that point, he's, what he's kind of saying maybe is that he's just a a, um, a vessel. I, I think that's true. I also think you know Brian with his mental health issues uh, as well as his creative process. A lot of things don't work out or haven't worked out, right? A lot of things are struggles. And so when something is natural, when something flows, when something is sort of automatic, isn't forced, that is his place where he feels good. Mm. And music is that place and remains that place. You know, one of the things that was the most astounding to me in getting to know Brian was seeing him in the studio and immediately going back into that place that you see in those old, you know, clips from when he was making pet sounds, when he was 23 years old and confident and no one could tell him anything. And he knew exactly what he wanted to hear. And when he goes in the studio today, it can still be like that. Um, He can still produce the shit out of a record. I also think just as a human being, right. um, We all get tripped up. We all get caught up. We all get hung up. And, um, I remember one day we went, we went, he wanted to go to the spa. We went <laughs> and got, um, we went to the spa. We we were going to get massages. He, this was all his plan, not mine. And, uh, and sit in the hot tubs in the sauna. Huh? And he got down there and he ended up not having a great time. Like the sauna freaked him out. Uh, he didn't want to get the massage and we left, but on the way home, we had lunch and he said to me, you know, we made a plan. We went to the spa, we got it done, and now we're coming home. That's a good day. And, you know, that feeling of like when things work out, when even if it wasn't the greatest experience at the spa, when, you, when you're able to, to, to follow through, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, think that, um, I, think that's, I think that's important for him. And I think music is one of the places where he finds that ability um, where things make sense in a natural way. Yep. And that reminds me one last thing about him. And it's a perfect segue too, because he had that line in, he discussed in the, in the film about how he's got about two minutes of nerves on stage when he first goes on, then he hears California girls and he's good. I thought was fantastic. Mm-hmm. It reminded me so much. I went to go see Don Rickles about, I don't know, 15 years ago, maybe yeah, about 15 uh, at the Canyon club. I think it was in LA ish and the big room and ladies and gentlemen, Don Rickles, and he comes out and he's got a guy with him, a helper. He's kind of like, you know, shuffling him along a little bit. He's pretty old at this point and he's just not in perfect health. But the second he gets up on the microphone, boom, he's alive. And he's, he's an hour and a half, right? You know this, right? He's just kill, kill, kill. And the second they're done, the guy comes out, takes him back and he kind of shuffles off. And it was interesting to see his whole body light up. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think that's exactly what it what it's like for Brian. I mean, well, I'm not I think saying that, that at he, all. I'm not saying that at all. Yeah, Brian. I mean, Brian never liked to perform um, in the Beach Boys, and in fact, quit performing with the Beach Boys in 1964. Yep, and didn't really perform on a regular basis until he put this band together that you mentioned with the Wondermints, which is an exceptional, wonderful, one of the greatest you know, bands and all of music uh-huh. um, and one of the greatest eras, I think, of a great artist sort of restoring his legacy with Brian and the Wondermints. It's been amazing. But, you know, Brian 
the up until the pandemic was performing 120 150 nights a year which he'd never ever done and he was doing it he doesn't have to do it he's doing it because he loves it uh-huh. and because being on the road with his guys making music uncovering these songs that he'd forgotten about or 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 had never a lot of the songs i mean this is an interesting thing and it's true even right now they're on tour they're playing tonight um a lot of the songs that they play had never been performed live before this group started playing them. Huh. And it, that's amazing. That music that was made, you know, in the late sixties into the 1970s and had never ever been performed outside of the studio. Huh. And so I think that's, that's just an incredible, incredible feat that just blows my mind. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, okay, segue slightly. I want to talk a little bit about Merle Haggard, who I know that you've written quite extensively about. And yeah. I was thinking about it. And again, this is I'm just going to throw a grenade in the room and see what happens. But the thing that I was I was realizing that both Merle and Brian kind of have interesting commonality and in that they are transparent. Because I noticed that Brian seemed to be pretty comfortable with talking about his mental health-ish, at least. And Merle was very open about at least, you know, talking about his drugs and talking about his prison record. And is is that a fair assessment to compare the two? Well, I mean, I think you can sort of compare the two on a, on a lot of levels. I mean, n- number one is they're both quintessential California artists. That's number one. True. I mean, there were actual days. I think maybe weeks, maybe not days, but I think days where they would record in the same studio in Capitol on the same day or the same week. Oh, really? <laughs> um, so, and, and, and so that, that's incredible to me, but they also represent two very different aspects of California. Brian is the sort of California dream, the California myth, the sort of aspirational idea of surf culture and, and that California is the land of milk and honey. Whereas Merle was writing about working people Um, about migrants, um, about, you know, the other side of the tracks for sure. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really interesting. Um, They also both are incredibly individual artists. They're not artists that follow trends. They're not artists that that do anything that doesn't feel true and pure to them. Um, And so that that certainly appealed to me. With Merle, though, I mean, Merle's a very different story in many ways. Merle you know, when I started to report on Merle, he was not really very interested. Um, I would show up, I would go see him perform. I'd, he'd give me a few minutes on his tour bus and sort of be done. And I kept, um, I kept saying to him, you know, I'm going to need more time if we're going to do a proper piece. And he kept saying, yeah, sure. Why don't you show up here and, and this day? And I'd show up and, and then, you know, I'd get another 15 minutes and he really wasn't that interested Um, so I stopped, I sort of gave up, um, and I just didn't do anything. And about, I don't know, I had been talking with his publicist who I was friends with and who was really close with Merle and was amazing, is an amazing woman, Teresa Redburn. And she'd said, well, let's just keep trying. Let's keep trying. And one day Merle called me and he said, you know, when's my goddamn story going to run? You know, (laughs) and I said, well, I said, I don't have it. I said, you know, I'm going to have to come out and visit you, um, to, to get it done when you're not on tour. 
And he didn't really want me to come out to his, his ranch, you know, which is kind of a sacred place for him where he was raising his kids and where he really went to unwind. But he, but he allowed me to come. And once I got there, everything changed. Um, and I found that he's one of the most intelligent, thoughtful, deep, conflicted, contradictory, funny, sort of statesman, you know, I mean, he was like someone, he was larger than life. His, mm. his mind worked at a level that, you know, I just really hadn't been accustomed to, um, talking to someone of his intellect. And we spent a lot of time together on that trip. Uh, and then I went back and, and a, a few times and we ended up working on the story really for two or three years. He got cancer in the middle of the reporting. And for a while it looked pretty grim. And then he got better. Didn't think that he ever sing again. And then he started singing again. And so like two and a half years or three years after I started reporting, he went on his first tour after the cancer. So I went back on that and then we wrote the piece and it ended up being, you know, it was, it was a really long piece. Um, probably one of the longest that we've published in Rolling Stone over the years. Um, and I mean, one of the greatest experiences of my career for sure. I would imagine. I will say this. I went to go see Merle at the Crystal Palace, which ladies and gentlemen is in Bakersfield, California. And it is kind of the cathedral, uh, the Vatican, I guess, of the Bakersfield country sound. And it was amazing. So the best part was my, uh, my late wife and I went to go see him there and the crowd, you know, like middle of a set, people were, some guy was screaming, Oki from Muskogee, kept saying it. Mm -hmm. And then Merle goes, this is my fucking show. I'll play whatever goddamn song I want to. <laughs> well, okay. So, I mean, yeah, the Merle, um, Merle doesn't really take requests. I noticed. Even from the band, Merle doesn't have, never had a set list. Huh? The band had no idea what song he was going to play next. Oh, like Dylan. And um, so Merle, you know, Merle came from, a tradition that, you know, the Bob Wills, Texas swing tradition, which comes from the New Orleans jazz tradition <clears throat> and the Jimmy Rogers blues tradition. I mean, this is really like where American music comes from. Uh -huh. um, even before people were really thinking about black music or white music, um, there was this, this, this improvisational um, musical melding of of traditions that that Merle goes back to and and part of that is that his band was so sick so good um you know Merle the band is the strangers and Merle had the strangers since 1962 and two of the guys who were in the strangers up until I think three of the guys up until about five years before Merle died were original strangers um and every night on stage the only thing you could count on is that at some point during the concert, Merle would say, ladies and gentlemen, I'd, I'd like to introduce the strangers. And then the strangers would all shake each other's hands. Huh. But that was the only shtick they would oh, do. Other yeah. than that, you had no idea uh, what songs they would play. And that's why it was a, it was a live wire act. I mean, a high yeah. wire act. It was an incredible experience every single night. Um, and Oki from Muskogee in particular, um, you know, is a song that, that, sort of on its surface is a kind of anti-hippie, anti-marijuana anthem. But 
it's very unclear how Merle ever intended that song. And it's not even clear that he knew how he intended it. It's very humorous. You know, Bob Dylan will tell you that it was, it was meant to be a joke. Other people have taken umbrage and offense at it. Merle is always sort of talked about it in different ways. Um, and it's sort of tongue in cheek and he sort of believes it, but, um, Merle was no stranger to cannabis. So certainly the anti-marijuana aspect of it, um, <laughs> he didn't, he, he didn't mean too seriously. Sure. Um, I just, ever since I heard him, it was such an honor to see him there. I also saw, um, Oh, who did I see? I saw Dwight Yoakam there. Oh, and I saw Buck Owens there. So it was kind of like the trifecta. Those are the big three from Bakersfield. The Bakersfield sound. Um, So you mentioned earlier about how rock writing, music writing has changed over the years. And obviously the industry has changed. And, you know, we were discussing earlier that, I mean, I got on board at Warner Brothers kind of at the height or the beginning, really, of like social media and the Internet and all that. So I saw it kind of flip. A lot, but I've been out of that world for so long that all I know is is short attention spans, TikTok. I don't see necessarily the investment that I used to have because I had that. I, I was invested. I bought a record. I drove to the drove to the store. I put gas in the car. I, you know, and and now everything's so immediate. So how has that affected writing? Do you think? I mean, honestly, I'm not really sure that it it has. Um, you know, I can remember, you know, in sort of my early days, all the journalists that came before me saying how different it was, how much it changed, how artists won't give you the access they used to, how no one cares about the music in the same way. I mean, that's just sort of like what people say when they get old, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> but, but I don't really know um, that that's so true. I think that um, magazines certainly have changed. There's not, you know, there's not as many of them. There's not um, as much investment in a lot of them. I mean, Rolling Stone, we've been really fortunate to, you know, to keep, we have, we have a bigger staff than we've ever had and we have more music writers than we've ever had. So, but, but, but there's not a a lot of that out there. Um, So I don't know that it's really changed. I mean, certainly musical styles have changed. I just watched, um, I hadn't watched uh, and I just watched last night, the first two parts of genius, the, the Kanye West doc. And man, I just loved the way they handled it and the access they had to him over years and years and years. And then the narration and the way they put it together, that reminded me of great music journalism with a point of view and the way that Rolling Stone, you know, used to handle stories in the magazine and still does. Um, and so I think that Access to a subject, right? Finding subjects that aren't just pop stars of the moment, but that have something deeper to say and and have stories to tell, are still the goals. Um, and so I, I don't actually think it's it's really changed that much. Just maybe the formats have changed. That's nice to hear. Actually, I used to do music journalism when I was younger, and it. Now that I'm thinking of it, you're right. The, medi- the mediums may change, but the message is always going to say the same, essentially. I mean, look, I mean, the thing I'm doing now um, at Rolling Stone all these years later is develop films, films and podcasts, but mostly films, documentary films about music. And I find that the same approaches, the same journalistic approaches, the same point of view, all that stuff 
is super valuable in this new medium. I mean, it's not a new medium, but it is a, a growing medium, right? People are 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 really interested in um, learning these stories that are deeper, um, that that cut deeper, that that are about artists that are significant and are you know um, groundbreaking in all kinds of ways, whether they're twenty two or whether they're you know a, a legend like Brian Wilson. And so finding new ways to tell these stories for new generations of audiences is, is like, is the fun part is the great part. That's just what's exciting about this. So can you tell me going with the theme, I guess, of the show, the inspired minds uh, show, tell me if you can, what the most inspiring show you've ever seen. So many concerts, um, you know, have really, just been like such elemental parts of my, um, my existence. Jazz has always been a major part of, um, of, of what I've been interested in and being able to see some of the great legends of jazz before they passed like Sarah Vaughn and Ella Fitzgerald was incredible, but also uncovering some of the artists that, um, people don't know about. There was a, a saxophonist from LA named Harold Land, who was um, the first saxophonist in the very, very famous Clifford Brown, Max Roach quintet. He oh. was later replaced by, uh, by Sonny Rollins. Um, but Harold made the first records with that quintet in the late fifties and then became a super incredible pioneer of hard LA jazz. Um, he'd been, you know, all but forgotten, hadn't made records in years. Um, but I'd stumbled on a record that he made called the Fox, which if you can find it, you got to listen to it. I mean, it's a, just an incredible record made by the most daredevil, wily, talented (laughs) 20 year olds. You know, you just, you you can't believe it's that good. Um, Anyway, so I, I had found out that, that Harold Land, I, I was trying to reach him. I wanted to write a story about him. And um, I couldn't, couldn't really find him anywhere. And then finally found a, a, a booking agent who said, oh, well, he's mostly in Spain and France touring in Europe, you know, so you'd probably have to um, go there to see him. And so I was young. I didn't have any money. Um, I was a freelance writer and I convinced a magazine called option, which was a great alternative music magazine in LA to let me write this story. And they were going to pay me, I don't know, I think like, you know, $300 Uh and maybe less actually. And, um, so I bought my own ticket to France, went to this club. The club had like a $50 minimum. I went in, sat in the back and just had my mind blown Mm. by Harold Land. And I went up to him afterwards and I said, you know, Harold, I, I flew here from Los Angeles. I'm a music journalist um, and I would really love to write a story about you. And he said, oh, yeah, well, I'll be back in L.A. in October, you know, talk to my wife. And um, and that was a that was a really formative experience for me. I ended up writing the story. Um, he expressed in the story that he had always dreamed of making a record with strings. Someone read the story who worked at a record label, gave him a deal and he was able to make that record. And that was like, that was awesome. You know, that made me really happy. And Harold and I um, became friendly and and actually played tennis together (laughs) quite a bit before, before he, before he died. 
Um, so there were things like that. There were also, you know, we talked earlier um, before we started about the Brian Wilson Smile concert um, at Carnegie Hall in 2004, which was the, it wasn't the first time that album was played live because it had been played live in London just before that. But it was the first time for, for really anyone to hear that album um, in its, in the way that it was meant to be heard when Brian started working on it, but didn't finish it in 1967. So that was an incredible experience for me. Um, definitely some of the punk shows I saw, the X concerts I saw um, were great. I got to, I was lucky enough when I was 16 to get to go see the, um, the stop making sense, the talking head oh. stop making concerts at, which were filmed at the Pantages, Pantages. theater. And, yeah. and, um, so being in the room for that was, wow. was incredible as was seeing David Burns show on Broadway, which was similarly incredible just before COVID. Uh -huh. Um, there have been all kinds of other things. I mean, you know, I, I just give you a brief aside, you know, when I was in high school, Bob Dylan was like, probably one of the worst performers, at least that I could imagine out there. And I went to see him a few times, including sort of the famous Dylan and the dead tour. Oh yeah. And I mean, I couldn't hear anything he was saying. I couldn't, I just, I could not as much as I loved Bob Dylan, I just didn't get it. Um, but in the nineties, starting with the album, what was it called? Um, there were three albums, Love and Theft, Modern Times, but the first one was, um, I'm blanking the name of it right now, but sort of starting in around, you know, 96, 97, Dylan found this new gear, I think, as a performer where he was performing essentially in the same way he was recording, which was a very live, very bluesy, very visceral way. Mm -hmm. um, he had a sick band. And those shows of Dylan in the late nineties um, were including, you know, some very small ones. Like there was a, a show at tramps, which was a great club in New York that no longer exists. Um, and Irving Plaza were, you know, unbelievably great and super memorable. There are so many, I mean, you know, I could go on all day. I, I know it's a loaded question. <laughs> There's a lot going on there in that question, but I always love stories like that. So I'm going to ask you one last question and then we're going to wrap this up. Here comes the final question. When you are, as a creative, let's just say this, as a creative yourself, when do you know that you're done with a project, with the writing? How do you know you're done? Oh, when, when they, when, you know, when they're banging on your door, when the deadline hits, there you, and go. you can't, you can't, when you can't escape the deadline any longer, when you've already delayed the deadline three days and you can't get another day. Um, I mean, that's when it's done. <laughs> Well, there's your answer. That's I love that. I love asking that question because I get different responses from different people. A lot of times it's that. Uh, my all-time favorite was from Neil Young when he said, when I'm done, which I thought was pretty Neil Young-y. That, that is very Neil Young-ian. <laughs> Young-ian. I like that. So uh, here's how I like to end these little shindigs. First of all, thank you so much for doing this. I'm going to do a little thing or I'm going to pretend to say goodbye. You're going to pretend to say goodbye. I'm going to pretend to hang up and we'll have a little post-mortem chat. Deal? Okay. All right. A little acting involved. Seriously, Jason, what a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate your time, you know, to, to sit at the, uh, at the feet of someone who is a Brian expert is for me like going to a uh, cathedral. <laughs> so, so, so thank you. Your turn. Well, thank you so much for the thoughtful conversation. I had an absolute blast. All right. We're going to pretend to hang up. I'm going to do a little three, two, one, and click.
Bye.